I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. Matthew 20, 17 through 19. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock, to scourge, and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. I'm glad to be with you this morning. It's good to see each of you. As we notice our passage, and we move forward just a little bit in the narrative of Christ's life to make illustration, we notice that after having observed the Lord's Supper, after having uh, taken that for the last time, Jesus, or the Passover Supper rather, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And then when He had given thanks for the bread, and He described for the disciples sitting there with Him the reason for its observance. He said, according to Luke, Luke 22, 19, that they were to do it in remembrance of Him. In remembrance of the things that He would do, that He was about to fulfill, and for the effects that that would bring about. That's why we honor His memory, isn't it? That's why each first day of the week we we commune together around a table and we honor His memory, His actions, and His love. Now let's talk for just a moment about a memorial. What exactly is the real purpose of a memorial? Is it only to honor those who we remember? Well, that's a huge part of it, isn't it? Anytime we participate in a memorial of any kind, it's to honor those who we are remembering. But I believe there is something else. When we engage in a memorial activity, it is to honor the memory of someone, some people, or some event that had happened, that has impacted the world or some people or personal individuals in some way, but there is more to it. We do it so we can encourage ourselves and those around us to greater service and to emulate the good qualities found in that memorial. Of course, when we have a memorial recognizing people in this world, everything about them is not something we would want to emulate, but maybe just that specific thing that happened in their lives or that thing that they did in aid or benefit to the rest of the world, we might want to emulate that. But when we talk about the Christ, when we memorialize what He did for us, we are to emulate every single aspect of His life as He lived in this world. And that's exactly what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to follow in His footsteps. 
He wants us to modify our lives in such a way that we can be what He was to the exact best of our abilities. He expects that. Are we going to be perfect and sinless in this world? Well, we're not going to be, but at the same time, we can't use that for a crutch and say, well, I can't be perfect anyway, so if I sin, I sin. No, we are to strive with all that is within us to never sin and to live as Christ lived. That's why we memorialize what He did And we remember what He did so it can encourage us to greater service for Him. After He instituted this supper, I want us to notice something that He did. He rose from the table, He girded Himself, and He began to wash the feet of the disciples. And of course, following that conversation that He had with Peter, where he had to explain to Peter that if he wanted a part in him, he would have to allow him to wash his feet. And of course, Peter said, well, then wash my whole body. He said, that's not necessary. And so he had to explain to him exactly what was going on. And then he said this, following that conversation with Peter, John 13, beginning with verse 12. He asked the disciples, he said, know you what I've done to you? He said, you call me Master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I've given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Now, I don't think it was a coincidence. When years later, Peter, in speaking to those, in writing a letter to those who were scattered abroad, said this, 1 Peter 2, beginning with verse 21. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow His steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in His mouth, who, when He was reviled, reviled not again, when He suffered, threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. By whose stripes ye were healed, for ye were as sheep gone astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. It wasn't about washing feet, was it? No, there are people in the world who, who want to make that specific act of washing feet something that Christ wanted us to do. It wasn't about washing feet. It was about living a life of sacrifice even when it's inconvenient, even when it's difficult, and it might even be embarrassing to some at some time. Was Christ embarrassed? Of the cross, he endured the shame. It must have been embarrassing to have been hung on the cross with nothing but a loincloth on in front of all those people, being treated like some kind of a common criminal, someone worthy of such a death as that. That had to have been embarrassing. But he did it. It wasn't about 
washing feet. It was about being like Him, doing the things that He did. Listen again to the words of Jesus as He explained to His disciples what was going to happen. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. He said, And the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn Him to death. Let's listen to the words. And deliver Him to the Gentiles to mock, to scourge, to crucify. But guess what? On the third day, He shall rise again. None of that was an easy task. But He did it anyway. And we memorialize that. Why? Not just simply because He was the greatest human to ever walk or live in this world, but to encourage ourselves to live like He lived. As we remember Jesus, let's remember Him for what He gave us, for what He endured, for the things that He has entrusted to us in this life. Let's think about His coming out of the grave on the third day because without that, none of the rest of it even matters. And then handing to us the opportunity to be members of His church, His kingdom, His body, to be able to make our way to heaven by being faithful. Let's remember that as we memorialize our Lord every first day of the week. Now, I've entitled this sermon, Remembering Jesus. And as we do that, I want us to make proper application to His memory. I want us to be able to make proper application for what He did for us in this life so that we might live in the next one. One thing I've always noticed about myself, and really I guess all people, is that we're very interested in the future, aren't we? Very interested in that time in front of us that we yet to reach. Always wanting to know what's going on. How, tell me the child, tell, tell me the adult sitting in here as a child didn't dream of adulthood. And the boy, the good times that come with that, right? Little did we know. What about adults as we, as we grew into adulthood? Did we dream about better times financially, socially, spiritually? Of course we did. And do, don't we? Are we ever curious about the weather? What's going to happen on such and such a day because I plan on being in a certain place doing a certain activity and boy, if it rains, it's really going to mess me up. Or if it's too hot, I'm just not going to be able to endure it. What about who's going to win the game? Are we interested in who's going to win the game? Absolutely. What about the stock market? How's it going to react? I've got maybe some some uh, retirement or something going on. You know, what's going to happen to the real estate market? Am I curious about that? What about am I going to have children? Am I going to have grandchildren? What about this one? When will I die and leave this earth? We think about that. And the older we get, the more we think about it, right? We are curious 
about the future. Why? Because we want to make plans. We've all got plans, don't we? Now, we may have plans that when it's all said and done didn't come about, but we still had them. We still had plans in a very similar way. Christ made plans. Now, He knew the end of the story. But He still made plans for the works in which He was involved. And He made them a long time before they came about. Now, if we're going to be like Christ, especially when it comes to living like Him, brethren, now listen, we have to have a plan. That's our first point. Not only do we have to have a plan, we have to be determined in fulfilling that plan. What good are plans if if that's as far as they go? Well, they may bring us a few moments of joy thinking about something that might happen, but they really do us no good. We have to be determined to carry it out. Again, Christ put His plan into effect long before He came to earth in the form of a man. Ephesians 3, 9 through 11, Paul said, and to, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. His plan was hidden. They weren't aware of the plan. They knew something was coming. Job knew that at some point he would have some kind of a mediator, but he didn't know exactly how or what or when, but he knew it was coming because God said it was to the intent that now unto principalities and powers and heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. How do we know the mystery? Through the church. Now brethren, listen, people throughout the world are going to say, the church doesn't matter. It's not about organized religion. It is about religion. It's about God's religion. And we're organized into a congregation of people. And each congregation of the church is a part of the universal church, and without the church, we can't know the mystery. It's not available to those outside the church to fully understand it. You have to learn about it, and once you learn about it, why in the world would you not want to be a part of it? Because that's the road to salvation. Paul says it right here. That we know that the wisdom of God through the church, according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. That ought to tell us something about plans. That ought to tell us something about plans. We better plan big and be determined to fulfill them. Because that's what Christ did. That's what He did, wasn't it? He made a plan. And think about the plan He made. To come to earth and endure what He endured. Who in the world planned something like that? The world will say, well that goes to tell you right there. There's no way that's, that's real. That's got to be a fairy tale in the myth. But let me ask each parent in here today, who wouldn't plan to do the same thing to save your own children from something, from harm? Who wouldn't plan to do that? There's not a parent in the world today, there's not a person in the world today who loves someone dearly that would not plan to give themselves to save that individual from harm and hurt. It is real. And that was his plan. And he made a big plan. Should we be concerned about the future? Well, of course we ought to be concerned about the future. We ought to make plans for the future. One man observed this. He said, you'll spend the rest of your life there. 
That's true, isn't it? If we live, we're going to be living in the future. It happens every single day. If we live, we will be spending our lives there. In our passage, we see that Jesus was concerned about the future, not because He he was afraid, not because it wasn't important. It was because it was important. Now, He didn't look forward to the cross, but He didn't fear it. He didn't fear the cross. Not Never a stronger man lived in this world than the Christ. He didn't want to go to the cross. He didn't want to endure that. But he wasn't afraid of it. He went and He stayed there and He did it for us because that was part of His plan. As the Lord walked along and, and He talked about this plan and His determination because He said, I'm going to come out of the grave after three days, He described for us what would unfold. He told how to be mistreated, how the Jews would, would be traitors to their own people, how He'd be cast over to the, to the Gentile, He'd be murdered on the cross. You know, that, that description of our plan isn't really all that different. Now, we're not going to go to the cross, likely. We're not going to be put to death, likely, for our beliefs. But should we be willing to suffer at the hands of the world? Well, if we want heaven, we better be able to do that. We're studying the Revelation in the morning class. That's what the whole book is about. The whole letter is about enduring suffering because something better is waiting on us. Revelation 2.10, we read it this morning. Jesus told the churches in Asia, Fear none of those things which you shall suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. Then you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. How is that possible? Because of what he did. Because of his determination. Because of his enduring the description given. Because he lived and he died. He came up out of the grave, and now we can lay claim to a crown of life. In following His example, we need to be able to have a plan of our own and to fulfill that plan that He's given to us to do those things He's asked us to do. But you know, the best laid plans, we can describe them all day long. We can say we have determination, but until they are discharged, they don't mean anything. What, what good would it do us to find a book that talked about a loving God who would send a person of that Godhood to become a human, to be the only begotten Son of the Father, that He would live a perfect life, that He would endure punishment, and that He would die, and then that's the end of the story and it never happened. We've got some books in the world like that. What good are those plans? They're worthless. It may be enjoyable fantasy reading, but the Bible is real. We have all the evidences that support that. It boggles the mind, or at least it does mine, how a God could endure that for such a people as He endured it for, knowing what would happen. The suffering and the sacrifice of the cross is obviously central to the scheme of redemption. 
all of the Old Testament symbols and types demonstrated that the Messiah would have to come, He would have to die. It was all part of the plan and and we see it discharged in the New Testament. We read about His being betrayed in Psalm 111. We read about how He would be deserted by His friends in Psalm 13. He would be pierced while on the cross, Psalm 22. Isaiah 53 talks about all the mistreatments at the hand of those wicked people. We have to imitate what He did. It's not enough to say, I'm going to do it, I'm going to obey. It's not enough to do that. We have to obey, and then we have to remain faithful. We have to continually discharge our duties as faithful Christians. If our plans are going to be successful, you have to have a plan. And our second point is you must be persistent or we must persist in carrying out those plans. Do we ever get a little tired? Yeah. But you know what Christ did when He got tired? He stayed. He stayed right there. He stayed on the cross. He had the the nails driven through His hands. He had the, the crown of thorns placed on His head. He was mistreated and more than I can't even imagine all that he went through. But I want us to notice, you recall during his arrest, Peter drew his sword and he tried to take off the head of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, and he ended up cutting off his ear. You remember what Jesus said? He made a statement to him. He asked him a question, Matthew 26, beginning with verse 53. He asked a question. I think this question points to the fact of what Christ did for us and His great love for us and the fact that He stayed on the cross because that's what He chose. He says, do you think, that's what we would say, do you believe, thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father? And He shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the Scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? The nails didn't keep Him on the cross. He created the nails. They forged those nails from the iron they dug out of the ground. He created that. Do you believe the creature can keep the Creator on anything? He created the the trees from which the cross was formed. He chose to stay there. Each of us better be considering our response to His staying there, right? And what should that be? Well, it should be that we will obey and we will be steadfast. Remember, that's what Christ did and we're memorializing Him this very day. Let's think about what He did. Are we going to be steadfast? He said, Matthew 10, 22, And you shall be hated of all men for My name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. I think Paul understood exactly what that meant. And when he wrote Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, he said, I fought a good fight. I kept the faith. Now there's a crown of life laid up for me. We get over into the Corinthian letter, 2 Corinthians, and we read about all that he endured as he was defending his apostleship. He said, They say they're apostles. I'm more. He wasn't bragging. He was just simply stating the facts of keeping the faith, of fighting the good fight. 
of remaining faithful. He endured and He was steadfast. That's what God expects us to do. How do we do that? How do we remain steadfast? Matthew 16, 24, we take up our cross. We follow Him daily. We carry that cross out into the world every day of our lives. And we use that cross to remind us of who we are and what He is. And we use that cross to put to death the sins of this life because there's something in all of us that we have to battle to remain faithful. Not that we're born sinful, but we've learned that over time. And we enjoy it. And so we use that cross to battle that. And we do that in, in, in large part through our prayer lives, don't we? You notice that Jesus prayed every time He had to make a huge decision. Do you remember prior to going to the cross, the writer of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 5 beginning verse 7, that in the days of His flesh when He had offered up prayers and supplications, now listen, here it is, with strong crying and tears, unto Him who was able to save Him from death. Does that sound like a man who wanted to go to the cross? No, but it's sure not a man who's afraid to go because he did. He did it on our behalf. What a blessing it is for any Christian to be able to take his cares or her cares in this life that we cannot affect and cast them on God and let Him take care of them. Peter said, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. 1 Peter 5, 6-7 Christ taught His disciples and the apostles to pray, and that is a wonderful benefit. I've said before, and I believe this with all my heart, if you have a wonderful prayer life, it's going to be hard to have a sinful life. If you have a sinful life, it's going to be very hard to have a wonderful prayer life. Let's have the prayer life. As we remember Jesus and these great acts of selflessness, and we want to emulate Him, we have to have a plan, we have to be persistent. But if we do not do that, there's going to come a time when we have to pay and we're not going to be able to do our part. That's our third point. How was it that Jesus paid for the sins of the world? Obviously, He was crucified. He gave His life on the cross. He he turned himself over. He, he allowed himself, because of his great love, to endure what he endured because he loved us. And here's the thing. All sin requires a punishment because God is a just God. And He is a righteous God. And Paul warned us, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Wages will be paid. And we have to be on guard for that. The first sin required the death of an innocent. And every sin since then, including that one, has required the death of a perfect Savior. And it happened. All the way from now, back to Adam. If Christ hadn't come into the world, we wouldn't be forgiven of that. Paul talked about His coming in at the right time. Galatians 4, beginning with verse 4. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive an adoption 
of sons. We were grafted, Paul said in, in Romans. We were grafted. Here he says we are adopted into the family of God because of what Christ did for us as we memorialize what He did and we remember Jesus Christ paid for our sins by giving His life and and we must pay the price by giving ours to Him. There's no way around it. I think too often in the religious world people are too concerned with hurting the feelings of someone who isn't quite being faithful. And I don't think we should ever unnecessarily offend anyone, but the bottom line is this. If we do not give ourselves to God 100% in this life, He's not going to welcome us into heaven. We can't live mostly for God and a little bit in the world. We have to live 100% for God. We have to give up what we know that is necessary to give up. We have to be faithful in every aspect of our lives. That includes attendance. That includes righteousness. That includes lifestyle. That includes everything in the ways in which we live. But before we can do that, before we can pay that price, we better sit down and count the cost, right? In the parables of counting the cost, Jesus spoke to the decision that we make regarding living our lives for Him. It's no secret. He requires a great price. It is a huge price that we have to pay because He paid a huge price. Why should ours be any less? It's less. But it's the greatest that we're able to give. He requires that price. And He wants people to understand. As we walk the paths in this life, we're either going to be walking to heaven or we're going to be walking to hell. There's no in-between. There's no third choice. We're either faithful or we're not. God's given us the plan by which we are to live and all we have to do is accept it. There isn't a third option. He told us Matthew seven thirteen and 14 talking about entering in at the straight gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way which leadeth to destruction and many be there, uh, there that go in. He says, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life and few there be that find it. See, we have to understand If we're going to emulate Christ, because that's why we memorialize Him, we encourage ourselves to live like Him, if we're going to live like Christ, we have to understand our life must be a life of sacrifice. He gave a sacrifice. Why shouldn't we? To enter the straight gate, walk the narrow way, means we choose to do that. It isn't a a sacrifice forced upon us. Hey, The Jews didn't sneak up on the Lord. They didn't trick Him. They didn't beat Him out. They didn't overpower Him. They weren't smarter and stronger and and greater people. He allowed it to happen. We have to choose that. We must sacrifice worldly things to gain spiritual treasure. The writer of Hebrews said, Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Hebrews 11.25 Why? Why did he do that? Because he wanted to lay up treasure in heaven. Matthew 6.20 That is a choice. It's a choice. God's not going to make us choose. But it is a choice of sacrificing temporal joy 
for spiritual and eternal reward. John said this, 1 John 2, 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. From the very first sin, we learn how Satan used those techniques and he used them well. And every sinner who ever has lived in this world And every great man or woman of God who's ever lived in this world have succumbed in some way to those techniques. Again, we don't use that for a crutch. But we do use it to understand the danger that Satan poses to us in this life and more importantly in the next. Before we dedicate ourselves to God, we need to understand we have to pay. It's not free. Oh, the gift of life is free. But there are requirements. We have to pay. Peter warned about those who would leave God. We read about that in 2 Peter 2, 20 through 22. Those who had their debt paid, those who were in a covenant relationship with God, those who had obeyed the gospel, those who believed that Jesus did what He said he did, that he was who he said he was, John eight twenty four. Those who repented of past sins so they could place themselves in a covenant relationship with God, Acts three nineteen. Those who confessed him before men and that he was the only begotten Son of God, Acts eight thirty seven. Those who submitted to immersion in water so their sins could be washed away, Acts twenty two, verse sixteen. Those who for a period of time were faithful to Him and led a dedicated life. Those who continually paid that debt as they walked in the light, but somehow, somewhere along the way, they gave that up and they stepped out of the light. Peter warns them, you're worse off than you ever were before you ever obeyed the gospel. He says it would have been better for them to have not, to have not to have known the way of righteousness, and after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog has turned his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Those are not particularly pleasant illustrations, are they? That's what he says a person is when they leave God. Counting the cost, though, alone isn't enough. We have to plan, we have to persist, we have to pay our part, we have to do what He's asked us to do, we have to do what we can do for ourselves. We can't save ourselves, but we can meet His requirements. If we don't do that, you know really in essence what we're doing. We're treading on the very blood that He shed for us so that we would have the opportunity to be able to pull ourselves out of the sins of this world and be on the path to heaven. See, a memorial service reminds us what a person or a people or an event did for the rest of us, for the betterment of the world. But more importantly, it reminds us what they did so that we can encourage ourselves to be like that in that aspect. That's why we memorialize. That's why we take the Lord's Supper. We need to think about that when we observe that. Each of us must examine ourselves just as Paul commanded 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5, not 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
We're not to examine ourselves, I'm a faithful Christian, am I worthy? No, that's the manner in which they took the supper, 1 Corinthians 11. They were adulterating the supper, the manner in which they ate it. It it wasn't even the proper emblems. They were letting a, a common meal flood over. We are to examine ourselves in 2 Corinthians 13 to see if I'm faithful or not. That's how we examine ourselves. I know whether I'm faithful. There's only two people in the world know whether I'm faithful, myself and God. And I can lie to myself, but I can't lie to God. Every faithful Christian is worthy to take the Lord's Supper because God said we are. But am I faithful? That's the question. Are we remembering Jesus every day in our lives and living as if we remember Him? If you're here today and you're not doing that, you've somehow forgotten really what it's all about, take care of that today. If you're a Christian, you've fallen away, repent, confess those sins in whatever way necessary, publicly or privately. Ask God to forgive you. We'll pray with you and for you. If you've never obeyed the gospel, do that today. We talked about how to do it. If you have need to answer this Lord's invitation, do that as we stand and as we sing.